Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we talk to social commentator Mary Eberstadt about how family breakdown has given us identity politics and atheism. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right, thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. We are recording on April 12, 2022. Uh, I am in. Uh, blustery Phoenix, Arizona. And I'm very pleased to have as my guest one of the most insightful and readable public intellectuals of our time, Mary Eberstadt. Mary Eberstadt holds the Penula Chair in Christian Culture at the Catholic Information Center in Washington, D.C. She is also a senior research fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. She speaks and writes widely on a number of topics for venues like the Wall Street Journal, First Things, and the National Interest. And among her special areas of expertise are the family, sex, and religion. Mary's books include Adam and Eve After the Pill, Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution, and It's Dangerous to Believe, Religious Freedom and Its Enemies. We are going to focus our conversation, however, uh, with Mary today on two of her most recent books, works that have clear significance for the topic of civil society. Uh, The first and foremost book we're going to concentrate on is called Primal Screams. How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. And then we'll also talk about a related book uh, from 2013, I believe, called How the West Really Lost God, A New Theory of Secularization. Mary Eberstadt, welcome. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for that lovely introduction. Well, having spoken with you before we started recording about the name of the chair at this Catholic Information Center, then I screwed it up. So tell us what the, <laughs> as soon as I got to, I was like, wait, I don't remember how to pronounce this. So how is it actually pronounced? It is pronounced Panula. It is named uh, okay. Father, the late Father Arnie Panula, longtime leader of the Catholic Information Center in Washington, D.C., which is a really vital uh, oasis of the counterculture here. Yeah, I, I, that is absolutely true. And as someone who's sort of involved in fundraising and naming things, I know that the one thing you're supposed to do is to get the name right. So I apologize for that. <laughs> I got the important thing out of the way here. The name of the chair that the guest holds should be uh, pronounced uh, correctly. All right. Well, um, so let's, let's jump right into it about Primal Scream, sort of introduce people to the book and its argument. You start with a really good point which is that whatever people might think about identity politics, few people seem to have spent much time thinking very deeply about its roots. So perhaps we could just start there with some of the, some of the suggestions that have been put forth um, on where identity politics comes from, and then maybe a little bit about why you find them inadequate. Yes, thanks, Jeremy. So to start with the big picture, A lot of people in our time have the feeling that America has taken a wrong path, that there's something that's happened to this country that has somehow diminished its promise. Some people point to the acrimony of our political life. Other people point to things like the opioid epidemic. But there is this general sense that I think is widely shared that the promises of progress 
that were made mainly by the left have not materialized. The left says we live in an age of progress where one liberation after another has freed people up to make them recognized and held up and uh, seen, etc. But if all of this is true, why are there so many other signs of misery around us? This is the question that I keep coming back to in my work. And over the years, I've arrived at a countercultural conclusion, which is that the sexual revolution set into motion numerous phenomena that have not been well understood and that have, in fact, diminished our civil society. This is not to say the sexual revolution is the only thing that has changed America for the worse, but it is to say it is the biggest thing that nobody wants to talk about. And in Primal Screams, I'm looking at the political effects of this revolution. So let's start back in the early 1960s. The birth control pill becomes available. It's a major technological shock across social classes. And it is quickly adopted uh, by many people along with related sort of contraceptive devices. In the beginning, everybody thought this would be a great thing, right? It would give women control of their fertility. The argument was made that it would strengthen marriage. The argument was also made that it would uh, prevent abortions. This is actually what Margaret Sanger sometimes campaigned on, was the idea that contraception would prevent abortion. All these decades later, we can see that uh, that was a rosy way of looking at things and that things have, in fact, turned out very differently. So what did the sexual revolution do? One thing it did was to shrink the family. Families are smaller. Fewer people have siblings. Fewer people have cousins, aunts, uncles, etc. And we'll get to why that's important in a moment. Also, of course, divorce, fatherless homes, um, and other kinds of family breakup skyrocketed after the sexual revolution. Today, something like 40% of children are born into homes without a biological father present. So these are major changes, not only uh, seen from the perspective of American history, but human history, period. People have ceased to live in robust family networks. And it's hard to overemphasize just how radical that is. My argument in Primal Screams is that we are now seeing the consequences of 60 years of these compounded changes, and they are literally spilling into the streets. The argument of the book is that many people in the United States, especially younger people, are suffering from an identity crisis that's been brought on by the shrinkage and implosion of the family, which was once the most reliable place in which to find one's identity, and simultaneously by the collapse of religion, which is another place that made it easy to construct one's identity. Mm -hmm. What I mean is very simple. If you were to ask some people, who are you? most many of them would respond by citing their family connections, right? I'm a father, I'm a cousin, I'm an uncle, I'm a godfather, I'm etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But these days we see people answering that question differently. Instead, they're saying, 
I am a member of this sexual minority group or this political minority group, or hopefully more than one of those things. The point is that people today, especially young people, have been deprived of traditional ways of answering that question of self. And having been deprived of that relationality, they are now seeking with increasing desperation to construct identities um, and to join collective political groups uh, that operate as substitute families, substitute religions. And that is the argument of primal screams. You know, when you put it that way, it just doesn't seem very surprising, really. It, yeah, um, we have to construct our identities somehow, and if family isn't really available to us to do that, uh, you know, why wouldn't we do that in in relation to um, sort of a, it, uh, these sort of other groups that are available to us, these politically or ideologically constructed groups? And then that obviously seems to lead to why such the, our politics become so. Um, uh, so tense, so winner take all, because we're talking about not viewpoints here, but about who people are. And that makes everything harder. Yes, exactly. And I would like to zero in on that idea of winner take all. When we talk about how divisive our politics have become, this is exactly the problem. There's so little room for compromise because People in these identity groups, whether they are, say, feminist groups or groups based on sexual orientation, uh, et cetera, or ethnic background, whatever kind of group this might be, is a, a group that has come to be defended the way people once defended their families. So mm-hmm. no holds barred. When I say these groups operate as families, I mean that literally. And I part of what that means is that people bring these primordial loyalties to the protection of these political groups that are really misplaced because they're the kind of loyalties that would be found in one's kinship network. But nowadays, again, many people don't have strong kinship networks. One of the other things this means is that we have fewer people to learn from. That's a very important point. You know, several chapters of Primal Screams weaves this theme in and out because studies on the animal kingdom, for example, have revealed that animals are not born knowing how to be what they become. So a baby elephant doesn't know what it means to be an elephant. It doesn't come out being able to do elephantine things. Most of the time, these things are learned, and they are learned in animal families. Most animals, and this may come as a surprise to some listeners, but most animals live in nuclear family units and or extended family units. Yeah, they're not as uh, gender fluid as we might have suspected. No, not not at all. (laughs) So they learn from one another. So therefore, it makes a difference say, whether one has six siblings or no siblings. It makes a difference whether one has a male figure in the home known as a father or no such person. So part of the point of the book is that the the psychological breakdown that we're witnessing among the young, which, as you know, has gotten more and more attention since COVID, that this breakdown is also rooted in the same problem. The problem is a people shortage. 
a family mm -hmm. shortage, a shortage of those from whom we can learn how to be what we are. So when people say, to, to flip this around, when people say, well, why is there so much transgenderism? Why is there so much stuff about pride? Um, didn't used to happen. Why is this? My answer is it would be shocking if there were not confusion about such elemental things. We have confused ourselves inadvertently by taking away the building blocks of identity. This is what the sexual revolution has done. You talk about, um, just to stay on that particular topic for a second, uh, one of the pieces of supporting evidence you present in the book is um, about androgyny as a survival strategy. What do you mean by that? How, why, why, why is androgyny, I think you're right, you, you say argue that both men and women sort of regress toward a um, sort of a gender neutral mean in a way. Um, but why is that a good survival strategy in a time such as this? Yes, thank you, Jeremy. I'm really glad that you picked up on that point because it's radical, and I think it's been underattended in discussions of the book. Um, what I mean is this. In an age where many women no longer have healthy, non-sexual relationships with men, say brothers, fathers, uncles, etc., it makes sense for them to adopt a kind of protective coloration, a more masculine demeanor. Mm -hmm. This, I think, we see in feminism very clearly. If you look at something like the, the, uh, the Women's March on the Capitol um, several years ago, or any standard expression of feminist ideology these days, you see a kind of swagger and a toughness and a bellicosity that's kind of a caricature of masculinity. You also see um, a lot of words that we are not going to use on the air, for example, um, swearing like sailors, as the expression used to go. And I think this phenomenon has deep roots, and the roots have to do with the fact that in a world where women are less protected, uh, it will make sense to be tougher. And I don't mean that women cannot protect themselves. I right. mean that the absence of those potentially protective relationships um, is something that is detected subliminally, mm -hmm. and that people tailor their behavior accordingly. At the same time, a different set of incentives has come into being that rewards men for acting more like women. Let's go back to one of the things we started with, the fact that so many children are growing up without fathers at home. Mm -hmm. Well, that might mean one thing for a daughter, but a daughter at least has a, a model of her own sex to look to in the home, the mother. But a boy, and that is to say millions and millions of boys these days, receive mixed messages out of this. Men are bad. Men are absent. Men do bad things. Men can't be trusted. And so this message that I think starts out in the home as a very particular message about a particular man gets amplified and generalized. And this is what boys are carrying around. Again, I believe this is subliminal. This is not conscious. Right. But it means that 
the message is received that behaving more like a woman is going to be rewarded. And we see indeed that it is. It's rewarded in the corporate uh, marketplace. It's rewarded in the paid workplace in general for men to um, cease doing certain characteristic male things. (laughs) Like being direct or having opinions that are not um, generally accepted opinions or being what is perceived as more confrontational um, or more competitive. So our society is inadvertently but really trying to train these traits uh, out of men and especially young men. So when I say the sexual revolution created new incentives for androgyny on both sides, that's what I'm trying to explain. Even in a more perhaps superficial way, it was striking to me. I don't know if I can say this or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. About 10 years ago, it was like how sort of like a, a very thin, waif like body type became like the body type for among young men that you saw everywhere as sort of um, supplemented or amplified by the sort of clothing that was worn very skinny, you know, sort of skinny jeans and type shirts and things. But it was like, where did. Where did, why are all of a sudden we have, <laughs> why is this sort of the defining male body type, at least in certain parts of society? It was really uh, striking, I thought. And it certainly to me goes towards that androgyny um, thesis. Yeah, that's very observant. And uh, it, it goes along with the argument beautifully. And so does this sad fact. Um, therapists are reporting a, a phenomenal that's not overstated, phenomenal rise in eating disorders among young men. And I am sure it's for the same reason you named, that the waif-like figure has come to be more rewarded Mm -hmm. for what I think are probably deep reasons that aren't being examined enough. A couple of the other pieces of supporting evidence you put forward take on, they're related to what you've been talking about so far, but I want to give you a chance to talk about them. Um, uh, fem- I mean, that feminism is also a survival strategy would not seem to even take much explaining, perhaps. So what would you, what else would you say about, about that as a piece of evidence in, um, in favor of your theory? Well, I think that for all the progress that has been made, most of it material progress during the last several decades, it is also the case that women are more vulnerable than they used to be. Mm-hmm. The threats begin before they're even born with gender side. Millions more baby girls are, are killed by abortion than baby boys because of son preference. Again, this is the sort of phenomenon that can't help but get into the ecosystem somewhere. You know, it trickles in as a kind of poison and it's absorbed by the creatures in the ecosystem. Then Later on, uh, girls are threatened by other phenomena that never used to exist the way they do today. I'd say typically uh, the availability of pornography, uh, violent, frightening pornography that kids can now get on their phones with a click and that can't help but make girls worry about this is what boys expect, question mark. Mm -hmm. And I think girls do voice this kind of concern about pornography, but society is far from catching up to the damage that internet pornography is doing to the young, especially. Therapists are only beginning to grapple with this. We can now have 
young boys, young men with very serious problems uh, who have never even kissed a girl. Uh, so th- this is another big issue that's facing young women. Um, in short, the world that they are entering is not a very welcoming place to be a young woman. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure this also has a lot to do with the fact that most, quote, you know, transitions among the young are female to male. It's mm-hmm. girls saying, uh, I don't want to look like these images uh, of pornography. I want to look completely different. I want to be a man, in fact. That's what I want because that will protect me. So we have a lot of work to do on all of these issues, but I think it's important to understand first where they are coming from and the gravity of them. For many years, uh, the libertarians have held sway in saying that free speech demands, you know, no prosecution of obscenity, pornography is fine, women like it too, this is a choice, etc. But the addictive character of internet pornography has vaulted us into a whole new place where I think we are going to have to do um, a lot of remedial work. One more example before we get off this part of the, of the topic um, is the Me Too movement. You point out how that sort of illustrated a breakdown of social learning um, among both men and women. Uh, can, you, can you elaborate on that? Sure, of course. So when the revelations about Me Too were coming out, I think a lot of social conservatives were excited because it seemed like for the first time there was a national movement that understood that something had really gone wrong out there between men and women. Remember, the women who were coming forward were the products of our best universities. They were in the most glamorous um, disciplines, uh, media, Hollywood, uh, journalism, not that journalism is that glamorous, but uh, it is in certain quarters. Um, So, I had a different take home from all of that because I was not very optimistic after reading through many of these accounts. Because in these accounts, over and over, uh, these accounts of male depredation, uh, in these accounts, there was so much confusion on the part of both sides. It was like a Rochamon play, you know, it was like episodes being described completely differently by each of the parties involved. So the women were saying, he forced himself on me. He did this, he did that. The men were saying, well, that's what she seemed to want. I thought that's what she wanted. Now, how can all of this confusion come into being when we're talking about all of these sophisticated, educated people, the products of our elite institutions? Again, I suspect reading through those accounts that pornography was coloring um, the men's expectations in many cases. Uh, And also that these young women never had anyone take them aside and explain certain basic things like don't go to a man's hotel room at one in the morning, even if he is your boss, or especially if he is your boss. Um, The problem is that After the sexual revolution, we were sold this idea that men and women were essentially the same and wanted the same things. 
and that we were getting to a better place. Again, back to that idea of progress. Mm-hmm. That we were getting to a better place because of the revolution. Instead, I would argue, one of the effects of the revolution was to make young women believe these, these untruths, which has left them unprotected because they are not anticipating that there might be men like some of the men involved in the Me Too movement who were subsequently convicted, for example, uh, who would take advantage of the fact that contraceptive sex is everywhere and therefore, in their minds, any woman is potentially available. Right. This way of looking at things has been virtually lost, and I w- would argue entirely lost uh, on the level of our elite secular institutions. And that's what was coming out in the Me Too stories between the lines. With that, we'll take a break and we'll be right back with Mary Eberstadt and keep talking about the relationship between family breakdown, identity politics, and atheism. Right back. Uh, we're back. Time for one of these lovely practicalities. And today, happy to have with me my friend and colleague, Aaron Brown. How are you? I'm doing well. Good to be here, Jeremy. Aaron is a managing consultant with us, uh, works out of his um, uh, home in Atlanta or near Atlanta. Right. It's not in Atlanta. Where That's is right. North, just, just north of Atlanta. We, we don't. There's, okay. there's Georgia and then there's Atlanta. Where, where we live in here in Georgia. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this is advice from a true Georgia. Um, we're going to talk about a little bit of an interesting uh, topic. I like this topic because um, in the last couple of years, um, uh, quite to the contrary to what we all expected back in March and April, 2020, many nonprofits experienced significant growth. It depends on what sector you're in, but a lot of sustained have experienced significant growth. So mm-hmm. my question that, uh, we're getting asked now, I think a lot is you're a director of development or similar position, maybe even a CEO or a president. How do you sustain that growth? How do you continue to motivate your team when you're growing really fast? And then you therefore have to, uh, your programs are growing fast. You need to fundraise even more to sustain right. your growth. What uh, what answer do we have for people when they're in that situation? Yeah. yeah. So that is a really good question. And you're right. Uh, I think there is, there's some expectations in 20 and even into 2021, that there was going to be this shrinking of the nonprofit sector and fundraising was going to be really hard. And I think we saw the opposite of that with a lot of a lot of organizations. So there are a lot of folks who have run into this. And in my experience, I, I had three main things that I, I thought were particularly effective in keeping that motivation there and keeping people focused on the goal. And the first one is to stay in the trenches with your team. I'm a big believer in that. Take on the same tasks, cultivating major gifts from your donors, as well as prospect, prospecting new donors. Um, remind your team through your actions that you're doing this day in, day out with them, right? You're, you're all working together towards this ambitious goal. And, and I understand there's some organizations, right? They're structured in a way where the, the director of development or VP of development in, in some senses might not take on a, a ton of uh, a, a large caseload, but I'm a, I'm a big believer that uh, if at all possible, a director of development should be responsible for that kind of in the trenches work as possible right. um, because that's what their gift officers are doing, right? right. Um, it's almost cliche, right? But it's kind of this, don't ask your team to do something you wouldn't do. But I think, you know, it's cliche, but it's also true. 
Um, and I think it, it demonstrates that leadership and shows them, hey, we're all pointed in the same direction and I'm, I'm, I'm in this with you. Uh, the second thing is don't lose sight of the long-term for short-term uh, exchanges, right? And I think this was, there was a particular temptation in 2020 into 2021 to look at and go, let's just make it through this year because this is really tough and there's a lot of question marks and we don't know what's going to happen. And that comes at the sacrifice of pushing aside relationships with potential new donors or even current donors um, who are who may not give to you in this year, but you could tee them up and set them up for giving in the years to come. And this includes you know, cultivating high dollar donors that maybe have made it known that they were financially hit by this, but once they recover, they'll come back in. You want to maintain those relationships. Uh, conversations with donors around planned giving. That's a very long-term play, but you want to, those conversations have to keep going. Um, and I think also as you get to year end, right, there's this temptation to just, it's December, it's crazy, just get the money in the door. Yes, obviously you have to hit your goals and this shouldn't come at the expense of that, but I think you have to keep that focus on the long-term, um, particularly when it comes to cultivation, because it's going to set you up so much better. So that's that's the second thing that I thought was uh, particularly helpful, not trading long-term for non-repeatable wins in the short term. Um, and then the third point I'd make is to drive your plan, how the goal is going to be met, but do it in human terms. Make your team from the intern all the way up to, to you or, or your top gift officer feel appreciated and feel like they are a part of uh, the whole mission. You, you have talked about probably multiple times. What is the dollar amount we're supposed to raise? How does that break down amongst gifts officers, right? And there's so many moving parts in an effective uh, fundraising team that everyone, like I said, all the way down has to feel like they're a part of this. And that can be done in a very practical way. It doesn't mean you have to meet every day to like stare at this number on the wall, right? But I think I think you'll be much more effective if everyone is, is pointed in that, in that same direction and feels appreciated. And I'll actually make a sub note here that I think is it's kind of a point three B, which is celebrate wins. No right? kidding. I think, That's a great thing, by the way. I, I think we have this horrible track record, or, or at least this temptation as development departments to not truly celebrate wins. I think we, we like to try and contextualize them and say like, well, that's great, but we still have a long ways to go. Or, oh, that's great, but yeah. we were hoping for this kind of upgrade. I would do away with all of that. I yeah. would do away with all of that and just let wins be wins. Did you, did you have a major donor renew? That is a win in and of itself. This expectation that your current donors owe you something is the wrong way to think about it, right? And I think that has to be reflected in how we how we celebrate things too. That's a win. Uh, if you upgraded a donor, but it didn't quite get you to where you wanted to go, that's still a win. And I think the biggest one, and I kind of mentioned it, was this this phrasing of, okay, well, we got this and that's great, but we still have a ways to go. When you, always, when you add the but, you never let people actually celebrate. That's right. And that's right. And you kill morale. I mean, I've, I've seen this too. I, I think it's extremely discouraging. And I, I would say, let wins be wins. Everyone who is, and this goes back to the previous points, everyone who's pointed in the same direction, who's motivated by the same mission, they are not going to kick their feet up on their desk because <laughs> they got an upgrade from a donor, right? They're going to see it the same way. They know there's still a ways to go if there's right. a ways to go. You don't, you know, yeah. let wins be wins. I love it. That's great advice. Uh, it's all great advice. Stay in the trenches. 
uh, let wins be wins, celebrate wins. And the second point, which I'm going to let you tell me. Don't, yeah, don't, don't lose sight of the, don't lose sight of the long term in exchange for that's short right. one-off wins. Yes, and that's, yes, we yeah. need that too, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and you cut yourself off of the knees for later down the road. That's right. You have to hit your goals, of course. It yeah. shouldn't come at the expense of, of not paying your bills, of course, but yeah. Um, yeah, you cut yourself off at the knees and you won't set yourself up for long-term success if it's constantly putting out fires and not doing the long. Good advice, Aaron. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course, Jeremy. Anytime. Appreciate you having me on. All right, we are back with Mary Eberstadt, author of Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics, also the author of How the West Really Lost God. We haven't really gotten to that yet, but we will, I promise you, here in this last segment. So, um, Mary, you've been laying out uh, your argument uh, for um, why identity politics is ultimately rooted in um, the breakdown of the family and all, some of the things that are associated with that, like the rise of pornography, et cetera. Um, I would imagine that many, many times, <laughs> if you uh, provide, uh, are brave enough to present this thesis in, in a, an audience that you know is probably not very sympathetic, you are told that, um, no, um, you know, you're really what's happening here people are miserable because you know you know the, the white people don't rule the world anymore like they used to or males don't rule the world anymore like they used to or heterosexuals don't rule the world anymore like they used to um am i right do you get that response a lot and if and if so what what do you say when people say that kind of thing well you'd be surprised how little pushback i get mm-hmm. when i'm allowed to lay out the argument because I think people do respond to the idea that there's suffering out there. And that's what I make very clear in Primal Screams, that instead of mocking the millennials for being snowflakes or otherwise taking cheap shots about this kind of stuff, I do try to honor the emotions that I'm seeing and hearing uh, when they talk about themselves. And the bottom line is, I think they are on to something. A lot of people are suffering. A lot of people are miserable. But what they have to understand is that the dots have been connected for them in the wrong way. So they are not miserable because of some abstraction like heteronormativity, right? Mm-hmm. Or structural omnipresent racism. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying people can't be made miserable by racism, but I'm saying that The generational signature of this age of young people is rage and identity crisis. And racism cannot possibly explain all of that. Neither can the gender binary. Neither can the existence of white men. No, there's something else going on. And that other thing, I think, is the thesis of Primal Screams. It's that the collapse of the family took identity with it for a great many people and they're suffering as a result. They're also suffering because that same collapse has made them lonelier. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about it, 
what did children used to have in an age much less materially advanced? Well, they used to have siblings for starters. And that sort of thing is off the table now. No one is supposed to notice um, that so many people are singletons or from small families. And again, without extended families, without lots of cousins, uh, et cetera, in the mix. Well, I think that makes a great difference to social learning and to, if social learning sounds too abstract, it makes a great difference to all kinds of things that are important in life, like learning how to negotiate, learning how to share uh, scant goods, uh, learning how someone of the opposite sex thinks uh, differently, maybe a little differently, maybe a lot differently, um, et cetera. So we learn these things in the company of other human beings. And when our world is much smaller and there are so many fewer such people in them, we are at a disadvantage compared to the generations before us. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite message that we usually hear, right, Jeremy? Because usually we hear that we're at some kind of pinnacle and all of these crimes right. sins were committed by all the generations before us. My argument is just turning that upside down and pointing out that they had something important, something critical that many of us today are lacking. They had lots of other people in their lives who had their backs. And that's a great mm-hmm. law. I love that because you never hear anybody argue about the importance of cousins. <laughs> you know, aunts and uncles and cousins usually don't enter into these uh, discussions all that all that much, but you really are making case for the importance of that kind of thing. Is there is there a cross-cultural work on this sort of thing, comparing um, societies in which such connections are attenuated or completely lost to those where they remain and looking at, you know, psychological and sociological data? I can't, I can't pretend to anything close to yeah. omniscience about that, but I would say Societies that are even further down this road than we are, say Japan. Now, in Japan, mm-hmm. there's much less divorce, but the one-child family, uh, the shrinkage of the family, all of that has been more pronounced. And in Japan, you get these, you know, strange outcomes like renting people for photographic purposes, say a wedding, to pretend that you have a son or a daughter or whatever it might be. Um, You get phenomena like these toys that people get frantic about because if they don't quote feed them, the toy might quote die. I don't know if you're aware of this, but this was a big cultural (laughs) phenomenon (laughs) on the part of people who don't have children to nurture or grandchildren to nurture. And so you might say it's, well, it's a nurture instinct that has somehow run amok. You also get the boys who won't leave the basement, for which there is a word in Japanese that I can't tell you because I don't know Japanese, but it translates probably as herbivore. Um, Mm. And this is also true in South Korea. I think, in other words, where we have seen the family implode, we are seeing a variety of strange outcomes. And we need to look at these things carefully because measured by the rest of human history, the way in which humanity has been living since the 1960s is an absolutely radical break with all that. Right. I I guess another angle of rebuttal that someone might 
go down if they were having a good faith discussion with you would be, well, right. Um, we really started to see serious family breakdown by the by the end of the 1960s, maybe it's the mid-1960s. Um, why didn't we start to see all these strange outcomes in the 90s or the early 2000s? Why not until now? Is there is family breakdown just part of the story? Is there something else that happened that may got us to a tipping point? Or does it just take does it take two generations for this sort of thing to to start to happen? Yeah, I think the harm had to be compounded the way that it has been. Mm. Let me give you an example, not from the book, but one that I've been thinking about a lot, given all of the intergenerational strife that we are told about, right? We're told the the Zoomers and the millennials hate the boomers. The boomers mm-hmm. have all this stuff. Um, the boomers are a problem, et cetera. Um, one thing that strikes me over and over is that the boomers, whatever their political opinions, the boomers have had more social capital, right? They were still right. living in families. They still grew up, for the most part, in intact homes, in families of size. And that social capital. I think was a real leg up for them. And that's not to say that there haven't been other problems like student debt that have compounded the economic stresses on young people. It Mm -hmm. is to say that when we look at why were the boomers successful and the younger people today a lot less so in material terms, I think we need to look at those immaterial things too, like the fact that there was social capital there that has now been depleted. And its depletion is coming out in the woes of these younger generations. And there's no doubt, it seems to me, that identity politics is an extraordinarily effective way to um, keep social capital depleted, Uh, (laughs) right? I mean, it seems that the future of voluntary associations, intermediary associations, that sort of life between the individual and the state is not very bright in a situation where people... um, uh, really, it's very dangerous to encounter another person that you don't aren't sure holds the same ideological views as you or belongs to the same tribe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Again, it's easy to make fun of things like safe spaces and the thin skin of the Zoomers and millennials, etc. But underneath it, I think there's something real there. I think there is real panic whenever one's collective group is attacked or even perceived to be under attack, because if that group is really your family, then if they don't have your back, nobody does. And I think that's why people react so frantically to any kind of challenge uh, to these identitarian groups. I heard somebody, I know, a Gen Zer, just a few weeks ago, was saying to me that she wasn't sure that many members of her generation um, would prefer a world in which they didn't have to wear a mask. Some of them were very, uh, made them feel safer uh, uh, to wear a mask during COVID than than they otherwise felt. Um, They don't, sort of like they don't have a strong interior home. They're not they don't have a clear knowledge of who they are and who they aren't. Um, did you think about that during these last couple of years about what um, um, the sort of uh, 
embrace of of masking among people who are really not at very high risk at all for COVID nineteen um, meant in terms of the strength of their <laughs> identity or the strength of their sort of interior life. Yes, I think that's very sharp, Jeremy. Certainly, you're connecting the dots in the right way there. Um, I would add that again, not every bad consequence these days flows out of the sexual revolution, although many do. Uh, but in this case, I think it's also the the visual age that they have been born into is very hard for people in their teens, twenties, et cetera, today. It's very unforgiving and they're very aware of it, especially if they are on social media all the time, as most young people were, especially during the lockdown. So that gives them another reason to want to retreat behind a mask. But it does relate to the sexual revolution as well, right? Because uh, presumably it'd be great to have data on this if you were, um, if you had biological parents at home, still married, brothers and sisters, cousins, relatives, you have all those familial connections, you probably feel a little safer. It's just a feeling, no matter what the actual, you know, no matter how old you are or how, you know, um, how much you weigh and the, kind of these other risk factors for, for COVID. I, I would be really interested in seeing data there because I think it probably is connected in the end to familial strength. Yes, and so are other things. So, for example, people have been talking about uh, how there are moral panics, right? You've been hearing that a lot lately, and that parents are too panicked about their children and whether their children are vulnerable to abduction or other (laughs) kinds of (laughs) catastrophes. Um, You know, this has been in the air quite a bit lately because people have been trying to score political points uh, off it. But the truth is that I think parents react this way. Parents become helicopter parents because deep down inside, they know that the kids are more vulnerable because there are so many fewer of them. Mm. You know, to grow up in the 1960s was to know a world in which not out of religious reasons, just because that's the way things were. Most people had families of size. If two families got together, that was a kickball game for the kids. Right. That world isn't here. You don't see kids, um, for the most part, going around in gangs of bunches of them. No, my wife and I call them rat packs, and it's like you never see when when you do see one, your 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 heart lifts up because you rarely see them anymore. That's all we knew as children. Yes, it's so true. Um, Now, to say all of this is not to say, oh, it was so great in the 1950s. I have no idea what the 1950s were like, actually. Um, It was, it's not to say the genie goes back in the bottle. It is to say that the sexual revolution is like any other social phenomenon. It is open to debate and scrutiny and to a second look. And I'm very encouraged, Jeremy, because when I started writing about this stuff, and in particular, just over 10 years ago, when I put out Adam and Eve after the pill, which was a a frontal attack on the idea that the sexual revolution had been a good thing on balance. That was a shocking argument then. Now we have a number of examples of other writers coming out and saying, hey, maybe the sexual revolution thing needs another look. 
Um, there's, there's one in France, there's one in Germany, there's one here coming not out of religious orbits, but just surveying the evidence. So this makes me very hopeful that the second look that I've been arguing for really will happen down the road. How far down the road, I don't know. But it's not impossible to imagine secular society changing its opinion of this thing, saying this thing needs some reining in. It's, it's gone too far. It's hurting too many. Maybe we should take another look at, for example, um, no-fault divorce or other incentives that make it easier rather than harder to break up families. One can imagine those policy discussions coming. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. And um, one other, just to tie a knot on this, then here, um, one of the other consequences of the sexual revolution that you've talked about and we haven't talked about yet today is secularization, the sort of um, uh, irreligion, the growth of irreligion or unreligion. Um, how does that work? Can you just summarize your thesis fairly briefly on on that side for us? The first thing, and maybe you can make clear for people, is that there we there has been secularization, despite the sort of perhaps well intentioned arguments on certain people, even on uh, who are coming from a religious background, to say, ah, nah, there really hasn't been that much secularization. Uh, at least in, in the West, in certain key countries in the West, there certainly has been. Correct? Yes, absolutely. Just for example, when only thirty percent of uh, Catholics in Italy go to mass on Sunday. That is a definition of secularization. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there's certainly been secularization, and the whole question is what causes it. And in the book, How the West Really Lost God, I open by marching through several purported explanations for why it is that organized religion is declining across the West. And I show, I hope, that each of these standard explanations is insufficient. It's missing something. My thesis of secularization, uh, to the contrary, is that the sexual revolution diminished the family, sometimes fractured the family, and for a lot of different reasons, the churches and religion itself depend on the family for transmission through the generations. So let's take a perfectly prosaic example. Family breakup means that there are two parents in different places on Sunday or Saturday, as the case may be. Mm -hmm. It interrupts the transmission belt of religious teaching. And that's just a very pedestrian example. Um, In the book, I also get into the fact that with fewer births, with death being so sanitized that many of us will go through life without ever seeing it because it happens in institutional settings far removed. And because we have so many fewer attachments, again, that that people deficit that I keep talking about, that with the ordinary rhythms of birth and death interrupted in this way, there is another reason why people don't flock to religion, because religion exists in part to explain these things, right? These mm-hmm. profound things. Why am I mortal? Um, what's happened to my loved one who, who died? And organized religion has a lot of interesting answers to really big questions like that. But in the lives of many people today, those really big questions 
just don't come up with any frequency or urgency. And mm. I think that's another example of how the shrinkage of the family and the stresses on the family after the sexual revolution have ended up uh, in church decline. Uh, and there are many more examples in how the West really lost God, but that is the gist of the argument that yeah. we didn't lose God because we got smarter or because science disproved religion or any of these other commonplaces that we hear all the time. Something much more interesting has been going on than that. We have delivered ourselves a, a kind of self-inflicted wound that we have only begun to understand. And you, you marshal a lot of evidence from a number of countries and a number of eras. Uh, this really, it is quite compelling, showing that, um, uh, yeah, the causality may go the uh, the opposite direction of what we often think, or at least in part, as you're very careful to always say, at least in part, at least in part. <laughs> it's not, yes, becoming, um, losing one's faith might it, it lead one to not form a family or to leave your family or what have you. But it can go the other way as well, and you, you marshal a lot of a lot of evidence to that effect. That um, yeah, having a family, living as a family, um, uh, it can lead one toward God. And I, it made me think of—I don't know if you thought about this book. And I've spent a long time since I've looked at it. But Paul Vitz's book, "Faith of the Fatherless: yeah. The Psychology of Atheism." Yeah, yeah, it's it, a very important book where he goes into the biographies of leading atheists across mm -hmm. centuries and shows that in every case there was some kind of filial disruption, some, mm -hmm. something like the death of a father, the absence of a father, a terrible relationship with a father. And it's Witz's thesis that the, the, those ruptured relationships were what made it hard for atheists to understand the idea of a benevolent father. I think that's a very important insight. Well, okay. So here we are. Um, uh, the, um, we, the social, sexual revolution helps usher in an age of um, a family uh, breakdown. I, I always try to think of a more neutral way to say that, but there isn't much of a neutral way to say that, but certainly uh, different families um, than the ones we, the hum, human humanity has known for many, many millennia. That gives us identity politics and atheism, which is very problematic for the topic of this podcast, civil society um, in all its forms. How do you see this, if, if at all, being reversed? You, you cite uh, the Harvard sociologist, I think it was Harvard, uh, Patiram Sorokin, uh, who nobody remembers anymore, but was a great uh, sociologist talking about, his, his, and his thesis essentially is that catastrophe is <laughs> is the opportunity for for reversing a, a trend oftentimes or something new coming into the world are we left hoping for a catastrophe and if so did we just go through it i think we're in the catastrophe i think that people will increasingly figure this out it hasn't been that long since we've been living in this experiment and Again, in the beginning, the idea of being relatively free from family, free from fertility, etc., seemed like a liberating idea to many people. Many people embraced it. But now that we live with the consequences, I do think, uh, as with other large-scale public health problems, people will start to talk about this in the right way. And 
you know, I have friends, Jeremy, I'm sure you do too, who think it's going to take a religious revival to pull America back. I don't even think that's necessary. It wouldn't be welcome. But the bottom line is this, up until now, in polite society, challenging the sexual revolution has been impossible. The idea that there would be rollback of, of the sexual revolution in any way has been just ruled out of court by uh, people in cultural power. I like to use the word elites, but by people who control, let's say, important cultural precincts, like universities. Um, I think the minute it happens that something is successfully challenged about the revolution's legacy in a way that makes a lot of people say, you know, I think that's right. It will open the floodgates to other challenges. And it could be that the Dodds case before the Supreme Court is exactly that first um, opening salvo that changes everything. Because if abortion on demand were to be reined in in this country, it would show that something about the sexual revolution is susceptible to rollback. And I predict that if that happens, that abortion will not be the last thing that gets a second look. Well, that seems like a good place, surprisingly hopeful place to end our argument, um, our argument, our discussion. We weren't arguing, uh, maybe contributing to the argument. Uh, Mary Eberstadt, thank you very much for being with us. Well, thanks today. for having me, Jeremy. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you can find uh, Mary uh, online. I know you have your own website, maryeberstadt.com. Any place else people should should look for you in the in the public conversation? Thank you. Ev- everything is there on the website and also, of course, all over Amazon. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Still on Amazon. Uh, Mary is the author of Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. We also talked to her about her 2013 book, How the West Really Lost God. Thank you, Mary, so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Jeremy.